This is Cheryl Miller. I remember waking up, going outdoors, because on Sunday morning, one of the kids would pick up the newspaper. And I had done a couple interviews with the Press Enterprise, the local Riverside newspaper. And on the front page of the sports section was, she's 13 and she can play. And it was a picture of me on the front page of our daily Riverside newspaper. I remember dropping it and just screaming, Dad! And running into the house. That's when I'm like, yeah, I could, I could do some damage doing this. Now I know I can get a scholarship. Now people know who I am. And then after that, my life did change for a lot of different reasons, positive and sometimes not so positive because you don't have your privacy. And when you're that young at 13 and people are you know, pointing at you, oh, that's Cheryl Miller, you know, and now all of a sudden the adjustment of being normal teenager to now you're a celebrity, it's crazy. Welcome to season two of Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana, and Kate, ah! I'm so excited. I know. I, I feel other podcasts have chased guests for years and years and years. They're white whale guests. Our white whale guest is here today. She's here. Yes? She's in the waiting room. And so instead of talking about all the things we're going to do on season two, because honestly, who gives a shit about that? Mm-mm. We are going to interview the one, the only, the Gina Davis. That's right. We are finally, after... A long, tantalizing season one of teasing out the question of whether Dottie Henson dropped the ball on purpose. We now have the iconic actor in our Zoom waiting room ready to tell us the answer to this generation old question. But are you sure? Should we lay out all of season two? Maybe take people through? No, I'm going to let her in. I feel bad. We're making her wait. I'm going to let her in right now. Okay. All right. Let's let's just jump in. I let her in. She's in. Uh, Gina! Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you feeling? I'm I'm good. Thank you. I suppose we should dive right in to the question I'm sure that you've gotten many times, but we're going to press you on. When you went into the penultimate scene as Dottie, what was your internal motivation of that scene where Kit hits the high fastball? deep and then rounds third base. What was that character thinking in that moment? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm diving right in. <laughs> you're diving right in. Yeah. So you mean whether I dropped the ball on purpose or not? Is that what you're... Yes. That is the question that we have been searching for an answer for for months, Gina. Right. Well, you know, the thing is, nobody knows. I figure like I'm the only one who knows, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell because I think it's so fun that people don't know and they get to talk about it forever. It's, I mean, it's a big topic online and stuff. So I've never said, you know, Penny, we didn't discuss it. She didn't share her views on it with me. So I feel like I'm probably the only person who actually knows. Now, Lori Petty, who I love, is convinced that obviously that I did not drop it on purpose, that she, it was her superior skills. <laughs> so, you know, that's her opinion, but, but anyway, yeah. Was it understood among the cast and in that moment that there would be a controversy about Dottie's motivations at the plate? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that was sort of built into the script that it would be a question. It would be a question for people whether that happened on purpose or not. I mean, the, the movie doesn't 
indicate one way or the other, really, right? I mean, it doesn't tip off which one you should think it is. So, which is kind of genius, I thought. But uh, we just didn't ever talk about what it meant or what the true answer was. <laughs> I have to admit, I saw the film for the first time a couple months ago. I had never seen it before. So I really wasn't familiar with the entire argument of or discussion, I should say, between whether or not she dropped the ball on purpose. But the first time I saw it, I noticed that in the scene after the final play at home plate, your character is wearing the colors like she's wearing the same colors as Kit's team, the Racine team's colors when she comes out of the locker room to talk to her her younger sister. And I thought that that was an interesting choice by whoever was in charge of wardrobe. I wondered if it was a nod to her being, you know, kind of on the other team's side in that <laughs> final play and letting her sister win. Oh, my God. I never nobody's ever said that before. I've, I've, it's, this is me hearing about this. Yeah. I've never heard about it. Wow. It's kind of a yellow blouse on or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yellow blouse and kind of like a tan skirt. And that was the colors, you know, like your team wore more of like the pink peachy colors right. and the other team wore more of like the yellow beige colors. And I thought that that was interesting. And I noticed Easter it the egg. first time I watched it. Yeah. Ah, wow. I wish Penny was around to ask her about that. If that was that's really weird. That's going to remain a mystery, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so you won't tell us yet about what the character <laughs> motivations were. We still have time. We still have time. But I'm wondering if you could tell us about no crying in baseball. There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. That iconic line from the film and whether or not you knew that that would become such an iconic line when you were filming the movie, when you read it in the script for the first time. It was very funny, particularly when the way uh, Tom acted it. Because there's no crying in baseball. You know, no it was, it was just a really funny scene. No crying! But no, I had no idea that it was going to last the way it does. I had another line that went classic, which maybe people don't remember that in the fly, I say, be afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Be very afraid. That's kind of a, a line that people, you know, this lived on. <laughs> Did you make a decision when you first read the script about what Dottie's decision would be in that moment at home plate? What was your process in deciding at least what you thought her character's motivation was in that moment? I didn't, no, I didn't think about it when I first read it. I mean, it, it wasn't something that I that I immediately thought, oh, well, this is like a big, you know, it didn't strike me as important as it has become in people's minds. You know, it's like really like the key question, as obviously you have determined it to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a fascinating thing because I think in the sports world, as Jess and I is, you know, where we we live our lives and where we've we've grown up so much. And I know you too that there's there's this like understood belief that every athlete is supposed to take that you hear the line all the time, like, oh, they were competitive, even at Monopoly as a kid. And like, there's this yeah. myth that every athlete has to have that they would be stealing lollipops from babies, they were so competitive. And <laughs> there's no room in the sports world for like, you could be a great and a champion athlete. And also in certain circumstances, whatever emotional tugs might exist, you might see the bigger picture and like you don't need to win that one thing. And so there's no room for it in sports, which is why this question right. at the end of, the, of a league of their own is so fascinating because like Dottie was 
a fantastic athlete and a competitor and larger than life in this movie. And yet the truth could be that she saw the bigger picture in the dynamic with Kit. Right. That's why it's so intriguing because either, you know, either position you take, you could strongly, you know, defend, which people do. The first one, like you said, that an athlete would never sacrifice their ability or, you know, that she saw a bigger picture. I mean, both are equally defensible, I think. But the truth remains that you have an answer. You just, you're not saying it just so like, that's good, right? You know, you know the answer. Well, I, I have to, at least I have to know for me, I don't know. In other words, I'm not deciding for everybody what happened. As an actor, I had to know what really happened. But its I feel like it's not up to me to decide for everybody else what happened. Because otherwise, the movie would have made it clear. Okay, well, let's leave it there for now. I do want to like open it up to the broader discussion about A League of Their Own. Because one reason why I think it's so timeless is because even in 1992, 93, it's reflecting women's sports so accurately. Like the things that your characters had to do, the Rockford Peaches had to do to get attention. The way that individual characters were treated, like Marla Hooch is so representative of like the way we say sex sells in sports and all of that. So when you all were talking about the movie and making the movie, was it clear to you how representative you were making the movie as it reflected the actual world and the ways in which women had to navigate it? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, there was a documentary of the same name, you know, and we got to know a lot of the players. There were some of them were on set all the time as advisors and and all that. So, so yeah, I mean, I was well aware of what they went through, and also the fact that people knew until this movie came out and made it, you know, widely known. People had like utterly forgotten about women playing Major League Baseball. So it's just further evidence of what culturally was happening and what position women were forced to take. Like when now the men are back from the war. So stop doing everything that you've been doing. You can't have jobs anymore. You can't play ball anymore. And uh, yeah, so uh, it really highlights um, very much how women were perceived at that time. Jess and I, or maybe more so me, because Jess is 27, which is why she hadn't seen the movie until a couple months ago when I forced her <laughs> to. <laughs> um, you didn't and force I was shocked me. at this. It was, I, was, I willingly watched it, and I'm happy that I did, because it oh, became quickly one of my favorite films. Oh, thank you. Way to clarify, Jess. I did throw you under the bus there a little bit. In front of Gina. Like, That's Jesus, unfair. Kate. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh. We could wax poetic on like what the movie means, and especially means meant to so many like young female athletes growing up in the 90s and still through to today. But if we flip that around and we ask, like, how did this movie change you? Yeah. Oh, it it changed me a lot. Several of my roles have had that impact on me, changing my real life as well. But this one had a big impact. The main reason was that I had never been athletic before. I, you know, I was really tall as a kid and very physically shy, I would call it. I didn't want to try stuff. They were begging me all the time to be on the girls' basketball team. And I was like, but I don't know how to play. And they were like, just stand there. You're so tall. But uh, I had no idea really that I had athletic, you know, ability or that I, you know, that I was highly coordinated or whatever. And so having to learn, learn how to play for the movie was a sort of total revelation. I mean, very, very soon the coaches started saying, I was kind of picking it up well or quickly or whatever. And they said, you have a lot of untapped athletic ability. And I was like, 
oh my God, what, really? <laughs> That's incredible. And so it definitely completely changed my life because it changed how I felt about my body, about how I thought about myself. You know, I mean, that's one of the benefits, as you know, of playing sports is uh, boosting your in your self-esteem and your body awareness and things like that. So it was major. So you competed in the Olympics. Is that right? In archery? I didn't make the team. I, okay. I, I was a semifinalist for the Olympics. Oh, wow. Okay. But you were still very good at it. Is Pretty that good. something that you think you would have like taken up had you not had this role and learned that you were actually, you know, extremely coordinated and athletic? Oh, yeah, I never, I never would have. No, 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 no. That was a direct result of what Legal Their Own started. And then I had two sort of really action movies after that, where I had to learn ice skating and horseback riding and pistol shooting and taekwondo and various things. So it was after all of that that I realized and each time it seemed like I was able to learn the physical skill pretty well. And uh, it was after that that I thought, you know what? I would be very interested in learning a sport in real life, in the real way, and not the movie version where you could, obviously, if I don't hit a home run, it will still go over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yes, that's definitely directly why, exactly. There's a Hollywood Reporter article like a couple weeks ago about some show that's been picked up and the tagline was like star hockey player bombs out of league and hits rock bottom and reluctantly has to coach women. And that is oh, actually, no, really? yeah. Really? And oh there's like when the league of their own was made and like that's sort of like Jimmy's story arc, right? Like star male player has to like stoop to coach women, but then women teach him like some larger life lesson. And I understand the storyline, but it also, this kind of dovetails with like the work you've done tangentially to just like being in movies, which is changing the representation in movies. But I think of like that storyline and then also how close it is to women's sports in general, like the lack of respect and the ways women have to try to sell themselves in the WNBA and how how many lies there are about why we don't like women's sports versus like the reality of it. So. In what ways have you noticed do, does Hollywood actually mirror women's sports in terms of like the ways in which women are talked about and the challenges they face? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the most recent example is King Richard, you know, uh, where uh, I think that, that really shows the challenges that those when they were girls that they had to face and how women and black women also were were thought of and treated. But uh I became a trustee of the Women's Sports Foundation for 10 years after League of Their Own because I just felt so strongly how learning how to play a sport impacted me. And I wanted to help encourage girls to take up sports early so they could get those benefits, you know, decades before I did. So the value of sports has always been very clear to me, but I also became very educated about how, how women are treated in sports and like at the time that I was, so this was like in the 90, mid nineties when I was working with the Women's Sports Foundation. And at that time, the coverage of women's sports in, uh, in print was equal to dog racing and fishing as far as national coverage. So that was pretty stunning that that happened. And, and of course, you know, we all got excited about the NBA. We got excited about women's 
soccer and winning gold and all that. But we we definitely still have a, a long way to go till to women are are treated equally. Well, you know, even the the gold medal winning women's soccer team, you know, has had to really emphasize the pay discrepancy and try to, you know, work to make things more equal for for women, but it's a it's a slog. If you were if you were going to make a league of their own now, and I know they're doing the the reboot, do you have any sense of like kind of like what tweaks you would make to like update it? Who do you think if you could recast this movie in 2022, who do you think would be the Madonna character or the Rosie O'Donnell? Oh, that's funny. Nobody's ever asked me that. Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I'd have to uh, I'd have to think about that. I don't, could we I, have La- Lady Gaga starring in it? <laughs> Lady <laughs> Gaga as Madonna's character is perfect. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, that would be very cool. I'm thinking maybe Zendaya for, for Dottie. What, what do we think? Wow. Wow. Absolutely. Zendaya would be fantastic. Okay. Who else can we cast here right in the moment? <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell's oh. character, maybe it's like the first gay character that comes to mind. It's like Kristen Stewart's got to play Rosie O'Donnell because, Gina, one thing we need in this reboot is, I mean, you can't have a baseball team without one openly gay character. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Kristen Stewart would be great. That's a great idea. All right, we got this. We're halfway to. Are you going to executive produce? You feel good about that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you like us enough now to tell us if Dottie dropped the ball on purpose? <laughs> oh, I like you guys very much. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And I want to. I want to clarify when when I said I'm the only one who knows. I'm the only one who knows what my character's motivation was. I can't say I'm deciding for everybody in the cast or right. in the world. It's just, I'm the only one who knows what my character, what happened for her. Lori Petty's take on it is absolutely as valid as mine because, you know, that's what her character did. So, so you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I think Lori Petty also is like defensive of it too, right? Because she yeah. feels strongly about it. And I'm wondering if you've ever read any takes about either just that scene or about A League of Their Own that you felt like really defensive about and been like, no, that's actually not what that's about or that's not how we intended it or interpreted oh, it. Oh, um, no. Although I'll tell you, at the time, a lot of interviewers came to the set to, you know, get a preview of what, what was going on and interviewed me while we were there shooting. And every single interviewer just about asked, there's a lot of women, was there a lot of cat fighting mm-hmm. uh, in some sort of like, Ooh, I'm sure there was just so, and I was like, Oh my God, I set them straight about yeah. you know, that assumption. I mean, so ridiculous and women too. And the other question almost everybody asked was, is this a feminist film? As if they were asking like the naughtiest uh, (laughs) question, like, of course it's not. And uh, I would say, yeah. And they'd say, it is? What? (laughs) I said, yeah, yeah, obviously. And they said, wait, does that mean you're a feminist? And I said, yeah. And they were like, oh, Oh, my God. Can we? They were literally like, you can't believe it. But, you know, this is what three decades ago now. They would say, can we print that? That you said that? I mean, you're saying something that we can actually print. And I was like, oh, my God. Yes. You know, but can you imagine? I mean, but that's what it was like back then, that it was it was right around this sort of backlashy time 
where nobody wanted to say that they were a feminist. It was always, well, I'm not a feminist, but, you know, and, and I, I decided I'm not going for this, but thing. And uh, I'm just going to say it. I mean, now, sorry to go off on this, but my contention has always been that no one in America should be saying, I'm not a feminist. And still, you know, there are great swaths of of the country that still abhor feminists and put them down and uh, people that are afraid to call themselves that. But the meaning in the dictionary is a person who believes in equal social and economic rights for women. So who really, who wants to say, well, no, I don't believe in equality of women. I think women are inferior. But if you say you're not a feminist, that's what you're saying, you know, Mm -hmm. So anyway, I can only imagine if in there was like aggregated news media in 1992, they would have like sprinted from the ball field to to write <laughs> up like a Huffington Post article about Sheena right. Davis, self-proclaimed feminist. <laughs> right, right, right. Or yeah. proclaims the movie feminist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It'll be blackballed immediately. We do this thing called moment of epiphany and we often ask athletes that like when especially in the women's sports world like when did they first realize that the world was not equal for them within sports mm. Mm. um and i think i have to assume it applies to hollywood gab union did one for us about how she would always get the question like how do you balance it all and oh, how dwayne dwayne wade would never get that question despite him having children as well and a full life outside of basketball so is there anything that strikes you as as you were coming up in Hollywood or even later when you were running the Institute that struck you as a, like, wow, like this whole system is imbalanced for women? When I was starting out was a, a rich period, like in the mid 80s, I kind of started out at that time, like Meryl Streep and Glenn Close and uh, Jessica Lang and all those people were getting constantly in these big starring roles in movies, uh, Sally Field. And uh, I had already heard the idea that once you're past 40, it's harder to get roles. But I thought, well, that's not going to be true anymore because these women, I mean, look at what they're in, Sophie's Choice and all this. It's They're going to change everything. And then I was starting to get all these incredible parts. And I said, well, you know, this is going to be a, a thing of the past. But when Thelma and Louise came out, we were stunned by the reaction. Nobody was thinking, ah, wait till they get a load of this. You know, we're just like, this is a small movie and I hope they go. But it was the reaction of women who recognized me from that movie that really changed everything for me. Because, you know, people had recognized me for, oh, hey, I love Beetlejuice or whatever before. I was used to that. But now it was so different. They were like, oh, my God, that movie, you can't believe it. It changed my life. I, this is how many times I saw it. My friend and I acted out your trip. And I'm like, really? Which part? But um, that brought home to me in a very specific and powerful way how few opportunities we give women to come out of a movie theater feeling inspired by the female character or characters. Whereas men, every movie they go to, they can vicariously identify with the male lead. Or, But we, it's just a rarity for women to be able to feel like that. And things have improved somewhat, especially in lead characters for women. It's more than it was back then. But that made me realize, well, then I want to really choose roles thinking about the women in the audience in mind. Like, are they going to be able to get something out of my character? Okay, so maybe now we've won you over enough you can tell us what Donnie was thinking? Oh, you guys, I really, I really do love you. And this is this has been fun. So, oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I am going to tell you. 
So, Dottie's motivation is when. Kate, yikes! What just happened there? Should do. I feel like we have to to tell everyone what just happened. Yeah, that was oh, that was unfortunate, right? Of all the times for technology fail, brutal. Yeah. So, ah, uh, this is so awkward. I guess we should tell the truth. Gina's Zoom cut out, so then we started recording again, and I hit record on Zoom, but her audio didn't save when she started telling us the story again. So yeah. Kate and I heard it. Yes, we know the but, answer, but like, oh, I mean, it didn't save. So I don't know. I mean, should we just say what she's, I feel like if we say it in our own words, it's not as good, right? So there's no proof I mean, now. And honestly, I was thinking, I could try to call her back, but I don't have her cell phone number. So I don't know if that's going to work either. Yeah. And, and the more, Oof. the more I'm thinking about it, the more I feel like Gina's right. She's right that this movie belongs to all of us. I mean, now you know, and now I know, and she knows. We all know. We yeah, know, the three of us. We know, but that doesn't mean that everyone should have the answer. Like, the truth is inside of them. The truth is whatever they believe happened between Kit and Dottie. I mean, that's, that's how I feel. I also feel like maybe the answer wouldn't be satisfactory. It's the journey, right? Not the destination. Like, mm-hmm. don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Like, this journey was more fun than us three, me, you, and Gina, being the yeah. only three people on the planet who know the answer. Do you think our audience is going to be mad, though, if we don't tell them? No, they're going to understand that it's just me. I feel kind of bad, but... And Gina that now it's knows... It's like a if sacred anything, fraternity, like... Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel strongly that we just... You know, there's also that saying, like, let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah, that's true. And this is a sleeping dog. You don't want to poke that bear. I mean, maybe we just stay on top of our ducks here and let this one roll. I like that callback, Kate. I mean, there. I think everything happens for a reason. Like, her Zoom cut mm. out at the worst possible time. We tried to salvage it. You know, I did what I could. I'm not an, an audio engineer. I'm just a, a lowly producer. I, I did what I could, and I couldn't salvage it. Okay, well, look, you know... I know. The three of us know. Gina knows. All three of us. We know. And right now, the collective we, Mm -hmm. which would be me, you, and Gina. Gina. It's Gina. It's a royal we here. But maybe what we do is just, we can't tell you that, or we've decided not to, but maybe we'll tell you what's on the rest of the show. Maybe that will be a good stand-in. Yeah. I think people will be just as jazzed about the rest of the show as about finding out the ending to A League of Their Own and what Dottie's motivations were or weren't. So let's tell everyone else what to expect for the rest of this episode and the rest of season two even. On today's episode, we have a special extra extra about the league that very few people remember, which actually started at the same time the WNBA started. So we're going to take you on a little journey about the American Basketball League. And then we also have a fake ad. Don't skip the ad. Women like to feel safe. Women like to feel powerful. Women like to push themselves to the friggin' limit looking pretty as hell. From the team that brought you the tactical sports bra and the tactical tampon comes a brand new product for sexy winners. Introducing Tactical Mascara. Tech Mask. The only mascara for boss bitches who push themselves beyond the limit of reasonable human capabilities. 
Tactical Mascara is a proprietary hydrophobic blend of lanolin, essential oils, rare earth metals, and squid ink. Squid ink. Its Vanta Black pigment makes it the darkest mascara in the world. It absorbs 99.96% of light, which means it reduces glare and sensitivity to contrast. Sensitivity to contrast. Tactical Mascara makes you virtually impenetrable to any criticism, suggestions, or mansplaining. Whether you're on the court, in the office, or at home, there's no amount of sweat, tears, or opponent's spit that can budge this revolutionary cosmetic. It's been tested and proven not to smear, even while marathon swimming or chopping onions. Chop, chop, bitches. Tactical mascara. Mascara for winners who also happen to be women. Every so often, I'll remember that once upon a time, there was not just one professional women's basketball league, but two at the same time. This thought is usually followed by an image of the Colorado Explosions logo. No E, just a big X, an original franchise of the American Basketball League. Like most women's sports leagues, two words usually come before ABL. Now, defunct. But unlike most women's sports leagues, the killer wasn't misogyny and mismanagement. The ABL was killed by a second, better-funded league the WNBA. And every so often, I have a second fleeting thought. What happened exactly? And what would women's professional basketball look like if the ABL had been the one to survive? Here's defector journalist Maitri Anantharaman about why she set out to answer those very same questions. I was interviewing people who had covered the WNBA in its earliest seasons, and someone I interviewed mentioned that she had also covered one season of the Long Beach Stingrays of the ABL. And I've been a WNBA fan since I was a kid, but I, I hadn't heard of the ABL and I didn't know anything about it. And so just after that conversation, I, I started to do some reading on it and stumbled upon this incredible debate that I felt was still really relevant in women's sports. Before we get to that thought experiment, here's ABL co-founder Ann Cribs with the ordinary yet profound moment that became the catalyst for the ABL's creation. This from the short documentary film, Breaking the Glass, produced by KQED in San Francisco. My daughter Alex, who was 15 at the time, was very much in love with Chris Weber, who played at Michigan. And that morning I was reading the paper and he had signed for $8 million with the Warriors. So I called Alex and I said, Alex, your buddy's in the paper and he just signed for $8 million. And she goes, well, that's great, Mom, but I need some socks. So we went to the store to get some socks and walking into the store buying the socks, we found Molly Goodenbauer behind the counter. Now, Molly Goodenbauer was the MVP of the Final Four the year before. Molly sold us the socks and I walked out and stood on the uh, sidewalk in Palo Alto with the sun shining down on a November day and I looked at Alex and she said mommy what's wrong and I said well you know there's something really wrong with this picture when two individuals one's a boy and one's a girl one signs for eight million dollars one of them makes minimum wage both of them love the sport and both of them have committed themselves to it there's definitely something wrong with this picture we won't get too far into the weeds but the ABL was officially founded in 1995 by a handful of folks who were inspired 
by the Stanford women's basketball program. The ABL headquarters were in Palo Alto, and the league secured participation from all but three members of the now iconic 1996 Olympic team, which would go on to win gold the summer before the league's first season. And the ABL had a different model than previous leagues, pinpointing mostly mid-major cities, such as San Jose and Richmond, near where women's basketball was already popular. And the ABL gave the players a voice and a stake. Here's guard Jennifer Azey, coming to us from 1996 during the ABL's first season. The ABL wanted to recruit the top women's players that were on the Olympic team, different collegiate players, players that had been playing overseas, and sign up the players first and get their input and have player involvement in the league. And here's former Stanford guard, Kate Starbird, also from Breaking the Glass. It was right that moment that we were all like, oh my goodness, we're going to play professional basketball. All along, you know, we never had any dreams like that. I didn't think, I thought, you know, I, I majored in computer science. I was going to be a computer scientist, you know? Because we were so involved with it, we just felt like the ABL was just this great thing and it changed our lives. And at that point, I fell in love with the ABL. The ABL wasn't trying to exist in the margins, taking up space when and where the men weren't, but instead wanted to build a player-friendly league that spoke to women's basketball fans where they already were. The league paid players more money than the WNBA, and the quality of play was universally acknowledged as better. Here's Mike 3 again. The whole time I was reporting this story, I just, it's kind of this romantic thing, right? It's this idealistic version of a sport that I really love, but can feel kind of cynical and pessimistic about sometimes. And here were these people who were just kind of ragtag bunch. They didn't have a ton of connections in the women's basketball world, but they wanted to build something and they all really believed in it. That's true of the leadership and management, but also of the players who really bought in. But this swelling of love and optimism for the future was quickly complicated by the NBA's announcement of the WNBA in April of 1996. And the three Olympic team members who hadn't signed up with the ABL, Lisa Leslie, Cheryl Swoops, and Rebecca Lobo, became the cornerstone pieces of three marquee WNBA teams, Los Angeles, Houston, and New York. After this, and for a brief moment, it seemed maybe these two leagues could coexist the ABL played in the winter in smaller gyms, the WNBA in the summer in NBA arenas. Maybe one could feed the other and they could both grow together? But of course, in a world that had never been able to sustain a single professional women's basketball league, two was ultimately an impossibility. And the NBA didn't want to share the market. For the ABL, what it came down to was a TV deal or its inability to secure one once the NBA announced the W. We feel like we have the greatest product in the world, straight across the board. And it's really tough for the players, for the staff, for our investors not to get the kind of recognition that they deserve because a lot of people just don't know the ABLs exist because we're just not on television. The important thing for me is I love a good fight, but I just want the playing field to be level. It's really tough when the competitor has the kind of resources and is able to influence decision-making at sponsor and network level. That was Ann Cribbs again, co-founder of the ABL, coming to us again from the last millennium. At the time, another co-founder, Gary Cavalli, said, 
It's been very difficult for us to find networks and sponsors willing to commit to the ABL, willing to confront the NBA. And so by the later days of the ABL, they're in a situation where they are paying a TV broadcaster to or, you know, offering to pay TV broadcasters to show ABL games. Gary Cavalli goes to Val Ackerman, who is the WNBA's first president, and asks about a, a possible merger. And she kind of just politely takes the meeting, but nothing comes of that. I don't really think the WNBA needed to. The NBA had won at that point, and I don't know that there was anything they really needed from the ABL anymore. All the players were going to go there anyway because that was the only option left. When you have a monopoly on something, you have a monopoly on something. You don't need to necessarily make concessions. And for a split second, the ABL considers an antitrust lawsuit. They took a meeting with a lawyer, and it, it just seemed like more trouble than it was worth kind of thing. They had spent a lot of time and money and effort in this thing that hadn't worked, and they just wanted to move forward. The ABL filed for bankruptcy on December 22nd, 1998, just after tipping off its third season. It is a business. The ABL is a business. The WNBA is a business. It's almost comparing apples and oranges because of the NBA's role with the WNBA. That was legendary Stanford coach Tara Vanderveer from Breaking the Glass. And she hints at the larger question, which is, how does the NBA's role in creating and sustaining the WNBA impact how people view the women's game? At the time, for those paying attention on message boards and in communities, the debate was intense. Here, we'll let Might3 break it down for us. For a lot of ABL fans, that was the big knock on the WNBA. This was the little sister league. You can sort of preach women's empowerment, but how empowering is the WNBA really when it's this kind of subsidiary and it's never going to be the priority? But also... You have to account for some of the benefits of having a league like the NBA running your women's league, right? You don't really have to worry about it randomly folding one day. You can have some trust in the NBA to run a professional product. You have a lot of sort of overhead type costs and things taken care of there. And you have, in theory anyway, this sort of marketing mechanism and, and name recognition and, you know, kind of easy synergies that can be made. There was one quote in particular from Maithri's article, How the ABL Lost the Fight for the Soul of Women's Basketball, that really made me stop and think. She writes, maybe that's what the women's game has resigned itself to under the auspices of the NBA. Begin from the maw of compromise and you wither there. Ask men to legitimate you, and you are only asking to be overshadowed. When former star Val Whiting watches WNBA games these days, she notices broadcast crews interviewing Chris Paul or John Wall sitting courtside and sees all too plainly who's the star and who's being done the favor. There's no right answer here, just a question posed. The WNBA has existed longer than any other women's professional team league. And yet it's worth remembering the ABL and its place in history, its story, and how its fleeting existence suggests to us another world, somewhere in the multiverse maybe, where the ABL is the survivor, where a women's league carved out its own path.
Kate, in listening to this extra extra about the ABL, it made me think of a story about the WNBA that came out during our off the looking glass break that we just took. And the story was by Howard Magdal in Sports Illustrated. And it was all about the controversy about charter flights in the WNBA. And this controversy arises because some WNBA owners want their players to take charter flights and some are content with the way that the system currently exists, which is in the CBA, the commercial flight is the norm and there's that is strictly outlined. And so because of this structure of NBA, WNBA ownership, there are a lot of owners in this league who are on different pages about the way to progress and the way to move forward and the way to make the WNBA a better league and make it more attractive for players and see it grow even. And so it's interesting listening to this story about the ABL, which is a league that didn't have that same ownership structure and the sacrifice that you make having that ownership structure, right? Being the WNBA, but that it also lends you some stability, some credibility, and the WNBA has been able to succeed now for decades, maybe even longer than people thought it would when it was first envisioned because of that. But then you now still see the cracks beneath the surface because there aren't people invested in it that are all on the same page and wanting to see it continue to grow. Yeah. No, that's a perfect point because the key question on the table in sharing this extra extra, and it was the title of the article on The Defector, was the fight for the soul of women's basketball because the ABL had less of all of these shiny objects, but what it did have was pure investment and love of the game being built by and for a community that already loved that thing versus the NBA, which was a project of David Stern's and in some instances forced upon NBA owners and then marketed, at least initially, to a completely different audience than the core audience of women's basketball. And that has been a generation-long fight to actually pinpoint and actually direct the marketing toward people who actually love women's basketball. So it's this really interesting story about this league that could have been But does it even in the multiverse, right, as we like to talk about, if the ABL is the league that exists, sure, it's easy to say when things die young that it has a perfect life and it's idyllic. And so it's easy to pretend like the ABL would have been this steady growth that allowed women to be empowered and play the game out from under the thumb and shadow of the men's game. But then you also ask the question, would it even have lived? Because all of our previous iterations show us that those leagues die and they die at a young age. So I think it's just an interesting topic worth grappling with because you look at the NBA and you've got so much to be thankful for, but you also have to ask the question, like you did with the charter flights, are all ownership groups as invested as they are in their NBA teams? Is the league as a whole, the NBA, invested in the WNBA Because attendance was the highest it's ever been in the first season because it was the most marketing dollars. It was like the most investment. So if we want to understand the future of where the WNBA is going, then we have to look at the ABL too and be like, what did that show us about the heart of women's basketball that the WNBA, if it continues to grow and build into it, can make like a long-term successful model? Absolutely. And I think your point about the multiverse is that somewhere in the -the off-the-looking-glass multiverse This sports league exists that is a utopia that is created 
by people who just want to see women play basketball with no strings attached because they love women's basketball. And there's no one forcing them to invest in it. There's no one forcing anyone to watch it. But it's wildly popular because women's basketball is a sport that is wildly popular. That exists if you believe in the multiverse, which, of course, we do here. That is a world that exists out there. And what we might see in a world like that is people at every level, from marketing to sales to distribution, who are 100% invested in that product and therefore getting the most out of whatever that world is. Whereas sometimes you look at women's sports and you can say, well, it failed for this and it failed that and no one likes it and, da, 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 and you have all of these things and you're like, well, did you have people who, who were 100% in? Were you actually selling this thing as best you could? Or was it, as we tried to share in that extra extra, was it like born of the maw of compromise? I really liked that phrase. And just if yeah, something's- Yeah, maw of compromise is a good phrase. Yeah, and even if it was born of the maw of compromise, right? That doesn't mean that you can't grow out of it. It just means that there's thorns and there's obstacles that don't exist elsewhere. That doesn't mean the WNBA can't fulfill its vision because it certainly seems like it is, but let's understand like how it was born so that we can understand where it's going. Very good point. I would also like to add that there is a multiverse somewhere where there is a very popular multi-billion dollar women's sports league that, out of the goodness of their heart, adopted a men's sports oh, league. Oh, they're so cute. We want to give the guys a chance to play. They, no one, I mean, no one's really going to watch it, but yeah, we could just maybe like give them a smaller arena and hand-me-down uniforms and commercial flights and like we'll do a favor for them. It'll be cute. And like, us feel good. Once a season, the female stars, they sit courtside and they watch and they clap. Cameras pan to them and they wave to the exploding crowd. And it's just all very quaint that they're there to just shed a little bit of their spotlight on these men's players. Yeah. Those poor men. <sighs> no one's ever going to take them seriously. <laughs> well, I think we're going to explore a lot more stories like this in season two of sports leagues from years past and maybe what succeeded and what also failed. Yeah, I think we should do that. Let's do that. Okay, I'll get on it. And that is a wrap on episode one of season two of Off the Looking Glass. And Jess, I said that's a wrap because at the top of this show, we had Gina Davis, who's an iconic actor in Hollywood on the show. And now it's me, you and her privy to this golden nugget of information. Yeah, we're in the biz now. Like, we know a little bit of Hollywood lore that we can't really tell anyone else. I mean, I guess we could, but we're not going to. No, I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> but we definitely know. We know. We definitely know. So that's why I said that's a wrap, because that's a little insider Hollywood lingo yeah. that I wanted to flex. Wait, let yeah. me let me snap my little director cue. Yep. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Ah, we should tell people who made this little show of ours. Well, you produced it. Yeah, we both made it, really. You, Kate, and me, Jess, and... And Gina. And Gina. Carl Scott is our executive producer, and Joel Shupak did the sound designing and music for this episode. And Tactical Mascara was written by Henry and Mari Riggs of Nameless Numberhead. I figured I should actually say their names, because I thought they were nameless, though. Like, they don't have a name, right? True. One is... One is Mr. Nameless and the other is Mrs. Numberhead. Now they're the named Numberheads. <laughs> we can't call them Nameless anymore. <laughs> oh, God, we are funny. This has been a funny episode. <laughs> this is a funny I episode. I mean, Gina Davis really liked us, Kate. I don't know about yeah. you, but I've been riding that high all day now. Yep, that's right. 
Well, we got a great season too. So stick around because we are going to light some fires here on Off the Looking Glass. Burn, baby, burn. (laughs) 